You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Let's have all the oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG 13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Welcome to The Fabulous Invalid, Broadway's podcast, where we present essential conversations with a curated roster of the best, most important, and innovative theater makers working today, from actors to writers, directors, designers, and everyone in between. We took our name from the title of a 1938 play by Kaufman and Hart that has since become a loving nickname for Broadway itself, always deemed on the verge of decline, yet always bouncing back, The Fabulous Invalid. I'm theater savant Jamie Dumont. And I'm Rob Russo, writer and theater critic with Stage Left at NYC, and host of Stage Left, the podcast, also on the Broadway Podcast Network. So many hats. A lot of hats. Rob, with all the hats. I know, and ironically, I don't really wear a lot of hats because of my hair. I can't. I've never seen you in a hat. Yeah. I don't think, well, oh no, I've seen you in a baseball cap. Yeah. We took a Soul Cycle class once, and you wore a baseball cap. That's right. And I didn't recognize you when you were walking down the street. I'll wear a hat sort of like off hours, you know, on the weekend. On the weekend? Yeah. Is that how you say it when yeah. it's well, the weekend? When I'm, when I'm talking about hats, yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, um, <laughs> does anyone still wear a hat? There you go. I had there to get you, that You in. had to. You had to. Uh, well, today's a very special episode. Um, because you know, we say that every time. We do say that every time. But this time, we really mean it. Yeah, this time we is We were true. lying all those other times. But this time, we really mean it. Uh, because tonight, Jerry Herman and Michael Stewart's beloved 1974 musical flop, Mac and Mabel, returns to the New York stage for the first time in 46 years. Wow. Yeah. Which is kind of incredible. It's very incredible. And as the first presentation in this year's Encore series at New York City Center, Mac and Mabel also marks the first time Encore has done a show by songwriter Jerry Herman, who passed away back in December at the age of 88. The same number of keys on a piano. I love that fact. We, we learned that at the memorial service for him that was done at the Lent Fontaine. I never... Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't have put that together because no. I'm not a musician. I, you know, of course there's 88 I, keys on a piano, but it just didn't, wouldn't have come to mind. And then I, I went down this rabbit hole that there used to be a, a piano bar called 88s oh, in New York. And then go. I was like, oh, that's what that Duh. meant too. Yeah, you yeah. know, suddenly your whole world opens up when you learn a factoid. Right. Yeah. Well, we have spent, speaking of factoids, I mean, we have spent the past couple weeks thoroughly enmeshed in all things Mac and Mabel. And we're thrilled to share with you interviews that we've done with uh, Jack Vertel, who's the artistic director of Encores. Uh, Francine Pascal, who's the sister of the late book writer Michael Stewart, um, who has sort of shepherded revisions to the script to Mac and Mabel over the past 25 years. Uh, Rob Berman, who's the longtime musical director at Encores. Josh Rhodes, who's the director of this new production that's premiering tonight. Douglas Sills and Alexandra Sosha, who star as Mac Sennett and Mabel Normand. And Lily Cooper, who stars as, uh, co-stars, I should say, as Hoofer Lottie Ames. 
Um, but before we get to those interviews and dive into all the fascinating history of this incredible show, uh, we have two quick announcements to share. First, Rob launched a new podcast back in January called Stage Left, the podcast. Yay. Also a member. Yay. Yay. Also a member of the Broadway Podcast Network, this bi-monthly podcast features lively and engaging conversations with New York's younger and underrepresented theater critics and journalists about the latest and most noteworthy productions on Broadway and beyond. We love the beyond. I love the beyond yeah. because you've got some exciting things planned, and you've already done some of the yeah. beyond. Each episode features an in-depth roundtable discussion with a rotating roster of guest panelists with the mission of broadening the cultural discussion to elevate and include diverse perspectives. You can find the podcast on iTunes and at bpn.fm backslash stage left. Check it out. Please subscribe. Write a review, like it, love it, do all those things. Like it, love it. I love subscribe, that. Subscribe, oh, subscribe, subscribe. That's we want a big subscribers. Subscribe yeah. and also write a write a review. Give us some stars because that actually helps other people see it. Yeah, it helps other people find it. Right. Yeah. Um, we also have a really exciting new partnership to announce. Um, in this election year, we are in 2020. Um, one of our favorite new things is social goods. Uh, which is an online store that offers a well-curated slate of statement-making merchandise that gives back to nonprofits that are tackling today's most pressing issues, from every town for gun safety to Planned Parenthood of New York, uh, the Special Olympics, and more. Best of all, uh, as I said, we've partnered with Social Goods um, to offer a special discount for listeners of The Fabulous Invalid. So if you go to social-goods.com and use the code FAB15, uh, FAB15 at checkout, uh, you'll receive 15% off your first order. That's social goods where every transaction comes with real action. I already have a sweatshirt. I I already, and I already have a t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So social goods, check them out. They're really, really cool. It's a great website. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Great. Well, should we get to the episode? Let's do it. Mac and Mabel, the musical, tells the true story of the offbeat romance between silent film director Max Sennett, inventor of the Keystone Cops and the Bathing Beauties, and silent film star Mabel Normand, who was one of the greatest actresses of the late 1910s and early 1920s, almost 100 years ago. Uh, the show, which is narrated by Mac as he reflects back on his life and career once talkies have become the rage, follows the pair from Mac's discovery of Mabel at his studios in Brooklyn, to their big successful move out to Hollywood, their on-again, off-again personal and artistic squabbles, and finally, and quite tragically, her descent into drug abuse and eventual death. The idea to musicalize this true story came from a Hollywood producer and screenwriter who approached Jerry Herman with a pitch, then passed along the project. To do the show, Jerry reassembled the team behind the juggernaut of Hello, Dolly, book writer Michael Stewart, director and choreographer Garwood Champion, and producer David Merrick. Oh, David Merrick. <laughs> After an uncharacteristically long out-of-town tryout period, uh, Mac and Mabel opened on Broadway at the Majestic Theater on October 6, 1974, with Robert Preston as Mac Sennett, Bernadette Peters as Mabel Normand, and Lisa Kirk as Lottie Ames. At a pivotal moment in Act Two on opening night, a huge piece of scenery came crashing down, nearly crushing Kirk and several dancers. It was an eerie omen. The show received poor reviews in New York. Producer David Merrick lost interest. And as sales dried up, it closed a mere seven weeks later after only 66 performances. 
making way at the Majestic for that season's smash hit, The Wiz. While some critics had nice things to say about the show, particularly Clive Barnes, Mm -hmm. they were mostly cool to the show, dismissing the score, heavily criticizing the book, Gower Champion's inability to capture the magic of the movies, which Jerry captures in the score, without question. For sure, for sure. Yeah. That's a thing. <laughs> and also Robin Ragner's stagnant set yeah. while noting the 30-year age gap between Peters and Preston mm-hmm. and souring on the notes of irony and sad ending, which was very unusual for a Jerry Herman show. Yeah, especially after Hello, Dolly and Mame. Like, people were expecting a jubilant show, and this this has a sad ending. Yeah, and I also think a lot of people didn't know who um, Mac Sennett and Mabel Normand were, so sure. they weren't... They didn't necessarily see it coming. Or, yeah, I mean, yeah. You, like, Mame Dennis, I feel like people know that's a happy ending. Well, yeah, and, and Auntie Mame had been on Broadway a decade earlier. Right. Right, so they were more familiar yeah well still I mean despite all the criticisms um, the American Theater Wing remembered Mac and Mabel that spring and they it got the show got eight Tony Award nominations for best musical director choreography costume set uh, Peters and Preston's performances and even Michael Stewart's much criticized book but no nomination for Jerry Herman's score which is insane. It's shocking. And especially it, if you look at the list of the of the nominees that year, they had to really dig deep to find other composers to nominate. It felt it feels it felt intentional. Like that they were going out of their way. I like it was a bit of a fuck you. Yeah. Right. Do you know who else was nominated that year? Well, obviously Charlie Smalls for the Wiz, who won, but right. I don't know. I don't know who yeah. else was. Because that doesn't that, that was not a great it was year. Like, yeah, I'm trying to think you can't even remember any of the musicals from that season. And that's you know, know. kind of the joke. And we all listen to Mac and Mabel all the time, of right? Of course, of course. Well, thankfully we're able to do it because they did make Make an incredible cast recording, despite the fact the show only ran 66 performances. Which you're going to hear a bit of a bit oh, later. Yes, yes. Um, but the failure of Mac and Mabel really broke Jerry Herman's heart, so yeah. much so that he packed up and he moved to Hollywood, <laughs> planning to stop composing altogether and focus on his other passion, interior design, yeah. which... You know, he sort of was known for his right. incredible... Well, he, to, he was going to school to be an interior decorator. And, and, and before, you know, his mother was like, okay, Jerry, you've got to give this composing thing a try. Oh, thank God. Thank God she did, right? Yeah. Ugh. Well, this show, Mac and Mabel, was resigned to being forgotten uh, until British ice skating team of Torval and Dean uh, won a gold medal at the 1984 Olympics by skating to the overture from the original cast album. That album really paid dividends. I'm old enough to remember Torval and Dean. There you go. There you go. Well, suddenly on the heels of their win, uh, that album became a bestseller, uh, prompting new interest in the show that led to a charity concert in London in 1988 uh, and a fully fledged West End revival in 1995 that fixed many of the show's perceived faults and became a certified success. Uh, in his memoir, Jerry Herman considers Mac and Mabel to be his fourth hit after Hello, Dolly, Mame, and La Casual Fall. Um, but still, despite all that, Mac and Mabel has not played New York since it closed on November 30th, 1974. Wow. And that changes tonight. I'm so excited. So am I. Uh, and Jamie and I have been talking about this since the show was announced, frankly, that they were doing it in this season. Um, but we've spent the last month, uh, basically, interviewing folks involved in the production. It's been really illuminating. Our first stop was the cozy office of Jack Vertel at Jujamson, which incidentally is a couple of doors down from the famous all-red office of Mac and Mabel producer David Merrick. These things just keep kind of mm, happening. It's a, don't they? it's a sign. Which, that office is atop the St. James Theater. In addition to his role as senior vice president at Jujamson, which owns and operates five theaters on Broadway, Jack has been the artistic director of the Tony Award Honored Encore series at City Center since 2000. Why did you pick Mac and Mabel to be the first show of your final season at Encores? Oh, well, um, we were fortunate 
uh, in that we got the rights to Mac and Mabel, which we'd been trying to do for probably 10 or 15 years. Mm. Uh, and so once we were able to secure the rights, it just became, yes, let's do this one. You know, the, 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 um, I had spoken to Jerry Herman several times about doing a, one of his shows at Encores, and he was never particularly enthusiastic about the idea. He never saw an Encores, I don't think. You know, he lived in Miami, and he rarely came to New York, and he wasn't well. And, um, but he did grant us permission to do two, two songs from Mac and Mabel in a show, a compilation show that we did called Hey, Look Me Over, and uh, um, Francine Pascal, who is the sister of Mike Stewart, who wrote the book for Mac and Mabel, came to see it and was impressed and called Jerry in, in Florida and said, you know, we should let them do this show. You know, they could probably do a pretty good job on this show. So I'm hoping we will. But uh, once that happened and Jerry sort of relented and said, OK, well, you know, let them try. Um, we, we snapped it up as soon as we could because we've been chasing it for all these years. Did you see the show in 1974? I saw it trying out at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, which was its second stop on a very long tryout tour. Um, I think David Merrick thought, who was producing it, thought that uh, he could make some of the money back on the road mm. because it was Robert Preston and it was back at Jerry Herman and, you know, there was a lot to sell. So it opened in San Diego and then went to L.A. and then to St. Louis and then to D.C. and then finally landed in New York and I saw it on the second stop. Mm. I was reading Jerry Herman's memoir and he said the show was never better than it was on opening night in Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, yes. So you lucked I, out. <laughs> I didn't see it here. Yeah, um, I, I did. I do. I did. I do have a. I don't have it, but I have been uh, shown a bootleg or listened to a bootleg of the closing performance in New York. Mm. By which point, I must say, all of the performances were so over the top that mm. it was sort of frightening to listen to. Uh, I don't remember it being that way in Los Angeles. Yeah. So why do you think the show was a flop originally? I don't think that... Well, I think that a lot happened to the show on the road that probably didn't help. But I don't think there was ever a real meeting of minds among Gower Champion, Jerry Herman, Mike Stewart, and David Merrick as to what the show should actually be. Mm. So we were in the mid-70s. We were, we were sort of into the Sondheim era. And you couldn't really just do Hello, Dolly! anymore. And so Mac and Mabel was kind of a tragic story about silent comedy, which is a very hard needle to thread, you mm. know. Um, and the serious elements of it and the tragic elements of it and the sort of showbiz elements of it n just never quite coalesced to tell a convincing story that really moved people in a deep way. I think they wanted to. I think Gower Champion had his own uh, issues about wanting to be taken more seriously than just as a showman. Um, I think Jerry was very happy to be a showman and proved it in writing the score. And it just... It was it was somehow the wrong thing for all of these people to be working on together. Mm. Do you think, or maybe hope, that um, since we are now forty years removed from that sort of Sondheim revolution, um, that audiences will be more receptive to a story that is so offbeat and and kind of a tragic, sad love story? Uh, I, I think audiences will have no trouble with that at all. Yeah. I also think. Uh, one can't underestimate the fact that after Mike died, Francine Pascal began to write, with Jerry's blessing, uh, write some revisions to the show to try to clarify some of the things that were, and, and deepen some of the things that were sort of at odds with each other in the show as it currently existed. 
and Gower Champion was no longer involved. I mean, not to blame anybody for any of this, but it just got simpler. It was just Jerry and Francine. Um, so I think it's actually a better show now than it was then. What do you think it is about the show that captured the imagination of generations of people, <laughs> considering that it wasn't successful and it only played 66 performances? I think, you know, it, 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 the score is so good, and it's sort of, in a way, the last of those big, brassy Jerry Herman. I mean, he wrote shows after that, but, you know, La Caja Fall has a somewhat different sound to it and the grand tour isn't doesn't quite measure up to his best work i don't think as he was one of the first to admit um this one sounds like a hit show it just sounds so much like a hit show that you can't believe it wasn't a hit show if you if you just put the you know album on if you just throw the cd into your cd player um and i think the fact that it wasn't is fascinating to people i think there's actually an element of um, mystery surrounding it like how could this not have worked mm. and I think people like that kind of mystery you know MAME is a tremendously popular Jerry Herman show but I don't think anyone has questions about MAME they just remember that that was a hit show this one is like what's in this box when you open the box you know what's inside here and I think it's one of the things that Encores has, a, has the privilege of doing is opening the box mm. And, you know, we don't really try to fix or change these shows in a dramatic way. So you're not seeing some 2019 artist's idea of how to make this into some different show. You're more or less seeing what the audience saw back then and able to judge it on those on those merits. Well, I'm grateful to you for opening that box because <laughs> your, my experience with the show is exactly what you've described. I, I downloaded the overture as a you know teen and was like, oh my God, this is so good. What is this show? And I've been dying to see it ever yeah. since. So. Well, there's a secret about the overture, but I'm not going to tell it to you. Okay. <laughs> well, what's something, speaking of secrets, um, that you've learned over the course of working on the show that you think most fans of it might not know? There's, um, there's a beating heart inside the show about some issues that I think were actually issues for the for the creators of the show. I mean, it's a show about a very narcissistic guy who doesn't have time for romance and a very vulnerable woman who um, needs someone to support her in some way or other because of her own background and what she's been through. And I think that it spoke to the creators in a way that a lot of people uh, in sh who are in show business because they need the love that they didn't get anyplace else, because they need to prove themselves in ways that are public as opposed to being a great accountant or a great you know, <laughs> lawyer. Um, I think the show spoke very deeply to the people who were making it, but so deeply that each of them was seeing it through his or her own lens. Well, in those days it was just his, but... Um, I think that'll affect people who think about it that way. Like, how much Jerry Herman is in this show? How much Gower Champion is in is in these characters? Um, you know, it's a showbiz musical. I mean, it's about movies, not theater. But, uh, you know, that's the entertainment world is full of people with those kinds of challenges in their own personalities. I think there's a very good argument to be made that Gower Champion and Max Sennett share some characteristics uh, and and also maybe even David Merrick yeah I mean I didn't I met David Merrick once uh, but I, I didn't know any of those people um, 
at all. Well, I never met uh, Gower Champion. But yeah, I think, uh, you know, I th I, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure that as they worked on this show, they were, they were not even thinking to themselves, but they were unconsciously or subconsciously putting themselves into these characters. Yeah, I think it'd be hard not to in a certain way. But yeah, we, we will never know. Right. Yeah. We will never know. No. Yeah. So why do you think it is that um, it's been 46 years since this show was seen in New York? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I think that uh, I'm surprised that no one has done a real concert version of it in New York, um, you know, for a gala or something. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I understand why there hasn't been a commercial revival of it, because there's never been a version of it that was mm. actually uh, that would actually probably draw a wide enough audience to, you know, at high prices for a long run. Yeah. Um it, it is a curiosity in some ways, and it is not a masterpiece. It's, it's a fascinating thing that almost works. Um, and in some ways it does work. And in some ways, I don't know whether it can be made to work, but it would, you know, it's, just, it's, 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 not, it's not an instantaneously revivable show mm -hmm. from a commercial point of view. Do you have a, a favorite moment or a song in the show? I, I, you know, I vacillate back and forth between the up numbers and the ballads, but I actually think, and I'm an up number person, <laughs> generally speaking, um, and I think Look What Happened to Mabel is a fantastic song, um, but I actually think the most beautifully crafted song in the show is Time Heals Everything, which just I just heard a couple of days ago, there was the Jerry Herman uh, Memorial, because at, at, we lost him at the end of the year, um, and listening to that lyric... And the music is so beautifully composed and not, you know, one thinks of Jerry Herman as sort of a tunesmithy guy. <laughs> he was a very, very good composer. Um, and very, uh, the music is, I was thinking about it as I was walking back. The music is, he, he, he idolized Irving Berlin and I think the music is, expresses that. He is, the music is so open-hearted and so unguarded that uh, it does, it, it, it makes him unique in that pantheon of composers of that period. Um, they're not; Those are not the only virtues that a composer can have, but he had them in a way that nobody else had them. And as a result, I think he hasn't been taken as seriously as he should have been. Um, and Time Heals Everything is just one of the great standard ballads of the American songbook. Uh, the lyric, the music, the pace of it, uh, the way it marches toward its conclusion. It's just a fantastic song. Time heals everything Tuesday, Thursday Time heals everything April, August If I'm patient The break will You got no disagreement from us. You were just talking about it on the way over here. That, that was the almost the exact conversation we were yeah. having to ourselves about how, how complicated his music really is, and, and also how he says in his memoir that that um, that song is often not. Uh, oftentimes, people singing it don't really understand how to sing that song, and th yeah. that it's it's actually much harder to sing than than people think. I agree. Is there a takeaway you'd like audiences to have from from this production of Mac and Mabel that's about to open? I saw it. I actually saw 
what Mac and Mabel is. I didn't see some approximation of it. I didn't see some concert rendering of the songs. I didn't see it with a four-piece <laughs> combo and you know a cast of six. I saw Mac and Mabel. And I think for a lot of people who have waited a long time to see it, they will actually feel like it's too bad they were too born too late or whatever for the Broadway production, but now they've seen it and in its in its glory and with its challenges. Mm. And that is one of the great gifts of encores. It's the gift we try to uh, you know give every time we do one. Somehow the ceiling seems a little higher from the very moment I see Mabel come in the room. It feels like someone lit a roaring fire. But it's just the glow I get when Mabel comes in the room. So After meeting with Jack, Jamie and I headed a couple blocks north in Midtown to the living room of celebrated author Francine Pascal, the sister of Mac and Mabel's late book writer, Michael Stewart. In addition to penning the Sweet Valley series of young adult novels, Francine collaborated with her brother, Mike, as she calls him, on the book to the 1968 musical George M. In the years since his sudden passing in 1987, she's worked on revisions to his original book to Mac and Mabel, continuing right up to the opening night of a new production at City Center this evening. Your brother, Michael Stewart, uh, wrote the original book to Mac and Mabel. Yes. What do you remember about him first telling you about this show? Well, actually, uh, it was not a a wonderful experience the way the the trio, Jerry, Gower, and Mike, had done so well on Dolly. I Mm -hmm. mean, it just... just, uh, it wasn't the same. Uh, Gower, from what I understand, uh, was in a difficult time in his life and kind of depressed. Mm. The Jerry and Mike said the book, the stage, the presentation was a brown box, and they hated it. Mm. And uh, I, I'm afraid it's just one of those things that it just. It, they just didn't work that well together, these three people who worked brilliantly together. Mike's books were always brilliantly structured. And he once said to me, which is a kind of interesting thing, he said to me, the book of a musical is like a, a an invisible track. And that's what you follow. You don't see it, but it's there and it's made of steel. Your brother Michael Stewart and Jerry Herman sort of talked about doing a revival, doing a, re- a revision of the of the book and the show, kind of early on, right? After it opened so badly, <laughs> yes. And do you know why that didn't, why that never happened? Well, uh, it's n- it wasn't the when something like that happens and it's it's a failure, and it was what's called a flop. That you takes you some time to get over that. You're not going to jump right back in. It's not like it was out of town and you can rewrite it. You leave it alone. You never want to see it again in your life and that sort of thing. So uh, it's not unusual that it was that it just was quietly lying in some corner. Yeah. After Mike died, uh, Jerry did go to some very good librettists 
and I don't know why he wasn't pleased or maybe they didn't want to do I don't know. Right. All I know is that in 1995, uh, just about 1994 probably, uh, we began talking about it. He asked me what I thought. At that point, I became seriously involved. But the first thing I did was to research it. I really didn't know anything more than uh, you know anybody knows about Mac and Mabel. I knew for one thing that Mac had to be more likable. He had to be able to love. Mabel had to become a woman. And you had to hear what was going on in his life. Well, you did in the original, but it was so angry and hard. I wanted a softer, and I also wanted to hear Mabel. Both of them had this one thing in common and really held them. And they loved to make people laugh. Right. They really did. So keep the schmaltz and the suds and the sobs. The only art we know is to tickle the slobs. This curse we've been blessed with, completely possessed with is we want to make the world laugh. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Jerry, is, you know, his music is so fabulously uh, up and, and happy. and Not that he doesn't have, because I think he's written one of the best love songs, painful love songs, heartbroken love mm. song that I've ever heard. Uh, time heals everything. There's mm. just, if you look at those words and even forget the music, you look at those words, they, it just grabs you, it get, you gasp. It, mm. it was just so perfect. So make the moments fly takeaway that you want audiences to get from this production of uh, Mac and Mabel at, at Encores? Yes. I want them to know how, what a deep love affair 
this was, how much they loved each other, it killed them both. I mean, I, she didn't kill him because he lived on, but with a piece of a life, not enough. And should I love you, you would be the last to know. I won't send roses and roses suit you so. Following our chat with Francine, Rob and I trekked over to New York City Center to meet with Douglas Sills and Alexandra Sosha, who were starring as Max Sennett and Mabel Normand. During their lunch break, on their second day of rehearsals, we sat down in a small studio backstage. If you listen closely during the interview, you'll hear the music of Tchaikovsky's score of Swan Lake in the background. At Encore's uh, Hey Look Me Over concert in 2018, we got a little glimpse of about, I don't know, 10 to 15 minutes of Mac and Mabel. How does it feel to now get to do a full production? Exciting and scary. (laughs) It was so much easier when you only had to memorize one song and five lines. Um, And now we have to remember so much more. So much more. Well, Encores is a bit of a whirlwind, right? You have, what, 10 days of rehearsal or oh, yeah. something crazy like that? It is. Um, our director, Josh Rhodes, is saying it's like summer stock, except the New York Times comes right. <laughs> to no review pressure. you. <laughs> no pressure at all. No pressure at all. So, yeah. But it is. It's, it's a whirlwind, which is fun in many ways because you just have to do it, and it's a lot of instinct, and everybody has to just band together and... and and put it up and, and whatever. But but obviously when it's a show you really like or an experience you're particularly excited for, you're always like, oh, I wish this would last a little <laughs> bit longer. But Yes. <laughs> I <laughs> agree. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> I mean, it's exciting to get to do it, but um, you always wish you had more time. Mm. You can do things beforehand. Right. Yes, we met up a couple times beforehand just to work through the script with Josh and, and ask some of the bigger questions then, mm-hmm. you know, in our, in our private unpaid time before, right. uh, before <laughs> rehearsal. Nothing like volunteering that time. Exactly. Huh? Yeah. Um, but, but that's, yeah, we, we took some initiative there because we have known for a long time. And, and that way it, it did cut down on what we needed to talk about in the room as mm-hmm. we are now building it. Yeah. But everything gets heightened because Jerry passed, right? Mm. Of course. And... Um, I think everyone sort of also feels that Jerry hasn't really had his due in the city, mm-hmm. which probably has a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it creates even more um, e- eagerness to open the present and let everybody celebrate him with a full production of one of his shows um, since his passing. So that's kind of nice. Um, yeah. And we have this script that has been controversial since mm-hmm. they started, right? So that's something for us to talk about. It's not like Shakespeare, which is down and everybody's done it mm-hmm. and everybody accepts it as it is and you can cut it if you want. But So, you know, that that's some of the um, difficulty that we encounter. Yes. And <laughs> well, and you're looking at the script through the lens of 2020 too, right? So it's, it's, it's a script that's been adapted slightly, but it's also, you're looking at it 40, nearly 50 years later. Right. Yes. Although, I don't... You speak to that. What? You're a, you're a female. You speak to that. <laughs> um, I'm not maybe not always the best <laughs> female to talk to in these situations because I find it interesting sometimes to look back and see the ways in which certain stories were portrayed, especially in a setting like this. 
um, and to see what they were getting at because actually there's so much in this show that's so empowering. Uh, Mabel's song, Wherever He Ain't, is such an incredible moment of discovery of this woman realizing she needs to think for herself and act for herself. Um, so I, I actually don't see anything that problematic. What I see is a relationship that happens all the time and still happens. I mean, you know, the, the, the director or the, the more powerful man finding like his muse in this woman he loves. I mean, A Star is Born. They redid A Star is Born <laughs> last year and we were all cool with it. Right, so right. Um, I, I think it's, it's a story we see all the time, have seen all the time, and there's so much in these two people who are so intertwined in the way that they love each other, but they love each other's talent and they love the thing that they make together. I just think they're always struggling with how much of us is us and how much is us because of what we are creating every day. And that's, that has no timestamp on it. Um, and that can always be, you know, always be quote unquote relevant, which is like my least favorite word in, um, <laughs> in the, the theater canon because it's human beings screwing up and, and who love each other but can't make it work. And when has mm. that ever not been something people are dealing with? So, yeah. Yeah. so I think there's a lot, I think what I love about the script and about the story that Jerry and Michael Stewart were writing is is that they were they were trying to get at something, and I think they were a bit trapped by Jerry's previous um, successes, being being a bit lighter shows, um, and Jerry's sort of writing the you know this very joyful music, and them sort of trying to negotiate how dark they could go and in what ways, and and I you know, um, but I I think they're original goal was was very interesting There's so much about the time where, you know, this is starts in 1911 and things were different and people acted differently and I don't think we need to somehow pretend for our today selves that they didn't act in certain ways, you know, because then that's actually not truthful. Well, look, a good story is a good story. Exactly. Either works or it doesn't. Right. And who cares what year it is? Either yes. you've gotten to the core of it and it has the basic elements of a good story and it's compelling and engaging or it's not. If somebody came and pitched this story and we were on the board of a 
something, you'd go, well, that milieu sounds really rich and interesting. We don't know a ton about how do you load the fit? What does the camera look? How did they shoot the, how did they speed up the fit? You know, who was financing? How did they move? There's so much interesting stuff about the technology and the taste of the day. Um, and that's always fun for actors. Mm. So yeah, it's mm. really rich. And you get these two wild people that cross paths and needed each other. And um, then events, you know, challenges and obstacles came in and um, some of which were external and some of which were mm -hmm. interior. Um, and that's really all you need. And then you have <laughs> Jerry's incredible music. To right. back it all right, up. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. And then you're just trying to find the tone. Yeah. How do you frost this with, so that all the layers of cake and frosting go together? <laughs> right? It's because that's sort of been a bit of the issue. Right. And until we sort of hear this glorious orchestra, I don't even know that we'll know how it fits until you get in there and start eating the cake from the inside to, exactly. to land with I a really metaphor like way too metaphor. much. I know, yeah, right? Now I want a piece of cake. I know. Yeah. I know. <laughs> there you go. And Swanson and Keith and Wrestler and William S. Hart No one pretended that what we were doing was art We had some guts and some luck But we were just making a buck Movies were movies were movies when I ran the show Those are some of the things, you know, I walk into this production with and a great opportunity to do it again with, I mean, come on, this is the place. Um, it's high pressure because everybody in New York comes um, and everybody respects this place and it's a great opportunity to do something where everybody has such a high bar because mm -hmm. everybody's trying to honor everyone else's work in the room. You know, there's nothing like a, an, an ensemble in New York City. They, they, it's just magic. They just put something together so fast that is so uh, uh, um, attractive and interesting and uh, exacting and it makes you want to do better work too. And then you have this sort of lightning magic and there's none of this well how much are you getting paid and and how long am I going to do this and what does my dressing room look like and because we're only doing it for you know you're in you're out yeah. um, and um, so that's sort of and I got to do that other production with Jerry so I get, did get to spend some time with him mm. and he was just this you know he's just really sweet yeah looking forward to having his hearing his stuff again mm. Do you both have a favorite moment in the show so far? I'm excited to get to wherever he ain't. I'm very excited to stage that because I think Josh Rhodes' uh, vision for it is really smart and um, strays from the original concept, but I think in a helpful storytelling way. Um, and so I just can't wait for us to uh, dive into that, I guess. my life some sparkle and fizz and think a thought that isn't wrapped up in his the place that i consider paradise is wherever he ain't wherever he ain't no more to wither when he's grouchy and gruff no more to listen to him bellow and bluff tomorrow morning i'll be strutting my stuff wherever he ain't wherever he Bullied and bossed 
interesting for me is I I, th- I think to uh, muscularize wherever possible the relationship with Alexandra on stage and so that's what's most intriguing to me and find out w- where Max's vulnerabilities are and what's motivating him because it's really um would be easy to just kind of go rah, 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 rah. You know, you're, you're a bad person I'm a big but I'm important and you're not <laughs> and uh, I mean that's okay I guess you know but I think what's more interesting is using the time you have to have the, 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 there's heat at the core that generates out from this attraction and repulsion mm-hmm. and this kind of nuclear fusion at the middle would radiate out and cause all the other things to happen uh, so, so we were working on a scene today, and that's interesting to me to find out uh, w- where Mac is vulnerable to her, why, how she seeps into his skin, mm-hmm. w- what is the magnetism that pulls him towards her inexorably, even when it's painful. Uh, and then I, you know, we've talked at length about this about the narration and that Mac exists in two time two mm. two time frames. He's in the story as he's telling it, and then he steps out sometimes. And that's challenging because for storytelling, you're stepping outside. You're telling a story. You you want them to believe in it. You want them to get involved and invested. And then you step outside. And I think that's a it can be a marvelous device, but it it can also um, cost you. I think uh, Swan Lake is rehearsing yeah, know, next to us. <laughs> Great. I think Matthew Bourne Swan Lake is rehearsing, and we just are hearing a recording of Tchaikovsky. <laughs> it's very dramatic. Russian. You, yeah. you might be you might be hearing it too. Yeah, I'm not if you sure. You can hear it. It's not. You're not having a stroke. <laughs> yeah, right. That's the best part about rehearsing at City Center. There's right? always some like Crossover, incredible right? artists, yeah. other other artists working here. At first, I thought, "What they've really reorchestrated." Mac and May. <laughs> so then as it kept going, I thought, oh no, there's some Schwann's done. Very Slavic. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's vulnerable and he's and now in they're another Russian. country. And he's yeah. in minor key. <laughs> well, you just touched on something um, that's so interesting. I, I, I went back and did something that probably neither of you would ever want to do, but I, I read all the reviews throughout the years of oh, this cool. show and the way that from 1974 I'll do that when we're done. to yeah, yeah. yeah to, to the <laughs> 80s to you know over the years and of course you know there's always been this this albatross hanging over the show that oh it's the book right the book's the problem the book's the problem the mm-hmm. book's the problem um, and even in Jerry Herman's memoir he talks about mm-hmm. how they had a really hard time navigating these characters mm-hmm. because they're on one level they're perceived as somewhat unlovable and it's hard to do a musical where you know, the characters at the heart of it aren't necessarily, you know, ones you'd want to spend time with. But I know that there have been changes to the book over the years. And, you know, obviously you're cognizant of the fact that the book is something that, you know, people have taken umbrage with. Um, So when you're approaching it, are you mindful of that? Or are you just trying to give it as much humanity as as you can? The second thing. Yeah. 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 Tone is important for the period. Yes. Tone is important for what uh, what else it was competing with at the time. Yes. I mean, it, you know, who's, you know, the, the tone today, if you think about what's going on as a result of who's in the president's office <laughs> versus what was going on five years ago, right. our expectations, our taste for entertainment, everything has shifted uh, as a result of what's going on in 
the world. Life, that's right. right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I, I actually, I can't remember now, was there something going on when it was done originally? Was he too old? Was there a strike? Was there, <laughs> right. I don't know what it was competing with. Right. I, you know, yeah. who knows? Are there, does it appear that there are more uh, comprehensive or stable books like Gypsy or whatever. <laughs> mm -hmm. Sure. Um, would this benefit from a real thorough time? Maybe, maybe. But it doesn't help us in this situation. In our right, time is course. so limited yeah. Yeah. that yeah. you're not going to be helped. So am I cognizant of remarks that the book has weaknesses? I, yeah, sure. Are we talking sometimes in rehearsal like, oh, could we maybe? And what is he saying here? Um, yeah, it's not like there's nothing to dig into. Like, yes, agree. There's there's been work over the years of how to streamline it all better. And and because I think what we've sort of ended up with is this sort of Frankenstein script from a few different mm -hmm. versions. And and also figuring out, you know, there were different characters and different ver you know, the very original, it's like a, someone named Wally, and then it becomes <laughs> Fatty Arbuckle, and then Josh Rhodes realized that like in all these different scenes, there was always like a random comic. And then he was like, one time there was a guy named Freddie's who was like, all right, I'm just going to make a character named Freddie. And he <laughs> cast Evan Kasperzak and uh, the, this incredible um, dancer and performer. And he's like, I'm going to use him as the comic who does all the like slapstick. And yeah. that's what we're going to do. So I, th I think there's a lot of, um, I think there's been so many versions and so much work over the years that there, we're, we're pulling from a lot of different pieces mm -hmm. and trying to, and trying to, Take like the best from from each one, and yeah. again make a make a Frankenstein. Um, w again with limited time. You, you know can't spend too much time thinking about those flaws. Right. You kind of say, you know, stay in your own lane. This mm -hmm. is my job. Make mm -hmm. this part work. Make it flow from the inside. Make it, you know, your sketch, but make it as in, uh, ingrained and uh, organic as you mm -hmm. can, and yet still fill up the space and <laughs> and the style of the time. There, it's not next to normal. You know what I mean? It's not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's not um, kitchen sink realism, right. you know. It has size yeah. and scope, and it has brass. Yeah, it's, and theatri mm -hmm. it's theatrical. It's yeah. very. I mean, there's like it feels like there's like 18 production numbers <laughs> that I think Josh is working on figuring out how to not, you know. And that's again talking about Jerry Herman. I mean, he was forced by producers to make a couple big production numbers. Right. Um, when Mabel comes in the room, was not in the show originally, and and. I, was it David Merrick who would have said it? I Probably. don't know, but yeah. was like, you gotta write the big song right. about her, because he had Mame, he had Hello Dolly, he's like, you gotta write. So it's this beautiful song, yeah. but in the original, you know, it becomes this gigantic production number, and we've just been noticing that some of that, it's more if you scale back on some of that a little bit, it, it fits more with what's going on mm. in the story, yeah. um, and, and makes the things in the book that are interesting and successful stand out more when you're mm. not like sort of coding it in yeah. spectacle. It, we're so early too. We don't know when you start the race and you have to cross the finish line here and they tell you, we've, you know in scene two you're gonna have to sing this song and this key and this is over here and this is over here. It's the running that you're gonna learn about how to carry yourself through. What mm. is the scope? Mm -hmm. well, how, what is the speed? How high do the emotions get? Can you sort of, you know, can you do this? Can you, yeah. you know, is there any room for this? <laughs> and, and no, probably not. So, but you might want to start there in rehearsal. So, you know, it's, listen, you know what it is. Yeah, you no, know what we're, it is. We're, we're, well, we should let you go cross that finish line. Yeah, right. Yeah. You guys have to get to rehearsal. So I want to thank you for uh, sitting down and chatting with us. And thank we cannot you. wait to see you on the stage. Thank you, you so much.
Jamie and I swung by a press event at City Center, where we had a chance to chat briefly with Lily Cooper, who co-stars with Douglas and Alexandra as Lottie Ames. I wonder if you could tell us about your character Lottie and how yeah. she fits into the story of totally. Mabel. So Lottie is a vaudeville hoofer. <laughs> uh, she's a tap dancer, and um, Max said it, and her worked on movies in Brooklyn before they sort of got big and famous, moved to L.A. So she really sort of started from the ground up with Senate pictures. Mm. So you're sort of like the, the sage yeah, in the group, the, yeah, uh, exactly. the pro. So Somewhat you just mentioned there's a lot of tap dancing there uh, is. associated with your role. Um, mm-hmm. How do you had a background in tap before yeah. taking this on? Okay. Yeah, so I actually started dancing as a kid, mm-hmm. and I, I have never actually really danced professionally or on Broadway, and so I'm really excited to show off some chops <laughs> that I haven't been able to flex in many years. Yeah. Um, so I was very sort of scared and intimidated at first, but I'm, I'm really happy to get to do it yeah. in the, the show. Come back right away. It kind of did. It's like riding a bike. It's mm-hmm. always in your body. That's great. That's great. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's great. <laughs> and you have sort of the two signature Gower Champion numbers yes, in the show, right? I really big do. time, mm-hmm. which is you know the the classic go in there song, Absolutely. right? And yeah, then, our travel song, that we right? On travel train, song. You know. Yep. And then tap your troubles away, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So what was your relationship with the show before this production? Um, I had heard some of the music. I did a Jerry Herman sort of tribute concert a few years back, um, but I never really knew the story of the you know, historical characters, people that it was based on. And so when I booked the show, I started doing a little bit more research, and it was just so cool that it was steeped in such mm. filmic history. Yeah. Yeah. So now that you've been in rehearsals for a week, do you have a favorite song or moment in the show? Ooh. <laughs> Either question. one of your own or, or I gotta say else's. it's Tap Your Troubles Away. It's yeah. a pretty f- fantastic like 11 o'clock number with the entire ensemble, all of the principals, everybody in the show mm-hmm. is on stage at the same time. It's pretty epic. And the lyrics are so clever. Oh, it's so I clever. I love those lyrics. Yeah, yeah, it's hilarious. It's truly hilarious. Yeah. Your boss just gave you the axe. There's years of back tax. You simply can't pay If a sky full of crap Always lands in your lap Make a curtsy and tap your troubles away So as folks prepare to see the show, what do you what do you hope is the one thing that they take away from Mac and Mabel? Um, I hope that we can tribute the late Jerry Herman and I hope that the audience enjoys the music and the story of these two people who really started the film industry. At that press event, we also got to speak with director and choreographer Josh Rhodes, who has taken the helm for this landmark production at Encores. So you are helming, directing and choreographing this landmark no pressure. revival, right? No pressure, no pressure. Um, how did you come to be associated with this production? Um, I, I literally got a call from, from Jack Fratell. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. And uh, I, I remember just almost dropping my phone. I was so excited. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. And you know what I did? Because uh, I'm a geek. I went out and, uh, not went out, but I have it, of course. Of course I have the album on my phone. I put it in my ear and listened to it and just like cried. Because I was like, oh my God, I get to be in the room where she sings wherever he ate. (laughs) I mean, the score is so good. Was that the moment listening to the album that stuck out to you the most, wherever he ate? Well, that's always been one of my faves. Um, I always have also loved Look What Happened to Mabel. (laughs) But it's funny when you love a score, but then when you listen to it again, 
when someone gives you the, the gift and says, you get to stage it, you listen to it in a different way. And so you hear the orchestration differently, you hear the plot differently, you hear everything. And so it's just, it's thrilling for someone to hand you that. Yeah. And, and, and a little daunting, uh, but, but most of all, the musical theater, musical theater geek in me just gets excited because um, I, I love the score. I love old musicals. I love that we get. I love the mission here. Uh, so it's to be part of it. To be part of helping people see the show again. Uh, if I can be a small part of that, that's amazing. So what what can you share with us about your vision for this production specifically? Um, my mantra is uh, it's a show about movies, but the way we're doing it, and um, and this might sound pretty. Uh, simple, uh, but it's uh, about making movies. It isn't about movies, it's about making movies. What was their life making this? And so um, the, the, the romance is really framed on a movie set and, uh, and a studio, in a movie studio. And um, because it's encores, you sort of want to pare everything down to its absolute kernel of, of, of what makes it valid. And I think at the end of the day, it's just a story that he's telling in his head uh, on his, in his movie studio the day before he loses it, the night before he loses it. So um, that, that in Encores is actually kind of doable, yeah. you know, uh, give or take 30 people in some costumes <laughs> uh, and a lot of dance numbers. And 12 days. Uh, and 12 days. Yeah. Yeah, 12 days. So we are, you know, we are frantically chewing away at it. Um, I keep saying it's like this huge meal that I, we just can't eat at all. <laughs> Um, but that we are really just trying to honor the material, pull out as much emotion and drama out of it as we can because we've got the actors. I mean, when you've got Douglas and Alexandra, it feels like what we can bring to, the, to people who really don't know the story or the book, um, two really good actors delivering um, the tragic love story and really making, carving out time for that and uh, really giving them air after all these production numbers, letting those two really land that. And that's my goal, so that you can really fall into Mac and Mabel. Which is so fantastic because everybody knows the score, but people don't know the book, they don't know the story. So you are, you are giving, an, it's an opportunity for people to rediscover something in a new way. Yeah, and you know, most of the people, you know, a lot of the, the, the the dancers and, and the, the people who uh, join the show, they always go, whoa, I had no idea, you know, because they got the job too, not knowing the show, and then they read the script and go, huh, I had no idea that's how the show ended, you know, and it's, it is a tragic love story, right. you know, it gets dark, but, and um, it's theatrical, it's boldly theatrical, and sometimes, you know, um, Firmly uh, using irony to tell theatrical irony to tell the story, you know, you got tap your troubles away and things like that. That's really bold and modern for when they wrote it. Right. It's kind of crazy when you think about that. I never, I had never sort of personally experienced Jerry Herman treated with um, the sort of irony of Candor and Ebb. Uh, but there are moments in the show that are like that. Your boat goes over the falls. The plane you're on stalls The pilot yells Pray When your parachute strap Is beginning to snap Smile a big smile And tap, tap Tap your troubles away I hope we honor the score because I think it's one of the greats and I want people to walk away with that and I hope that they um, realize that 
they were really bold and and uh, and even though it didn't have a wonderful first run, I hope that at least we honor it enough for people to recognize these were greats creating this. And even though it wasn't a hit, they were great. And you, I hope that, that we can showcase enough of that so that people can walk away and go, yeah, it was uh, created by geniuses that didn't quite get the big one that time. It didn't turn into Hello Dolly. <laughs> but you know, that doesn't make it bad. It's just, uh, if, if I could walk away with people going, all right, well done, Michael Stewart and, and Jerry Herman and, and, and Gower Champion, you know, because they, they birthed this thing a long time ago. And if, if we can push it forward uh, for the future, that would be great. Hold your tongue and hold your snicker for the new enchantress of the flickers is that plain little Nelly. last interview we'll share with you was with Rob Berman, who has served as the musical director of Encore since 2008. On that second day of rehearsal, we sat down with Rob in a rehearsal room backstage at City Center. Jerry Herman considered Mac and Mabel to be his favorite score. Mm. How would you rank it? In terms of both Herman and just the musical theater canon? Well, I always thought that Mac and Mabel was sort of the most Jerry Hermony of Jerry Herman scores. And I mean that as a total compliment. I mean, it's the the joyfulness the sunshine in the melodies the um incredible earworms the melodic hooks um so it's brassy it's his brassiest score for sure um and it also has incredible ballads i mean i won't send roses is such a beautiful beautiful song and alexandra gets to sing time heals everything which is a very sophisticated song. And so it's just, um, it, I, I, do, I do love the score to MAME, I will confess. <laughs> I conducted it at the St. Louis Muni in 2005, starring D. Hody. Anyway, it was very fun. That's a really, really fun score. It's another, yeah. That's a show we've never been able to uh, mm. get permission to do here at, up to this point. But um, It would be great if you could. Well, <laughs> I know. Um, but Mac and Mabel uh, is our first Jerry Herman score at Encores. I mean, letting uh, our great orchestra mm. dig into these great songs and great orchestrations. Mm. How many, how many people in the orchestra? Um, on this show, I think we have 28. Mm. 28. So, um, and you know. was it originally orchestrated for a larger orchestra uh, or no. for 28? No. We, we probably have a few more violins than they had originally, so actually we're a little bit bigger than they were. Excellent. Yeah, because we mm. can add strings when, when we want, which is very <laughs> nice. Thank you, City Center. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of orchestrations, I've often wondered, mm. um, and since I have the opportunity to talk to you, yes. an, an expert in this, uh, I would need to ask, um, how integral do you think Philip J. Lang's orchestrations are to what we think, to the sound of Jerry Herman, to what we think of when we think of Jerry mm-hmm. Herman. Is it Don Pippen and, and, and Phil, sure. Phil Lang I, that are, you know. I think they both had a, uh, definitely a contribution to what we think of as that sound, you mm. know, the way that Jonathan Tunick and Stephen Sondheim has that relationship, which is, um, Don Pippen, by the way, yes, for sure. You know, he, he did not, I don't believe he did Hello Dolly, but starting with MAME, 
he was Jerry Herman's music director, Lacage, this show. Um, and his vocal arrangements, mm. you know, are famously, uh, well, in the case of Mame, like super high, yes. and really showy and really exciting and just full on. And so that's what people want from, from these Jerry Herman shows is just, you know, the, the Alexandra mentioned when Mabel comes in, in the room, which is the number in the second act, Mabel returns to the studio. It's sort of the Hello Dolly number of, mm-hmm. of Mac and Mabel. And it's this about five and a half minute piece. And the arrangement, the way it builds from each verse, it's like five choruses. And, and the way it builds and the way it modulates and the way the vocal arrangement builds, it's just classic. Um, it's just classic Jerry Herman uh, number. And I actually don't know. I mean, I'm assuming that, that Don Pippin was a big part of structuring that song mm-hmm. and arranging it. Uh, but um, uh, it, it delivers a real satisfaction for those of us who just love, love classic musical theater. This show has one of the best overtures ever that we all love from the from the cast mm-hmm. recording. But I understand that it was mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. originally done as the overture. So it seems that um, that it seems I'm, I don't know the exact history, but I'm sure yeah. at some point they tried it as the overture, and then it ended up in New York as being the entract. Mm. So what you hear on the cast recording as the overture was played before the second act. Am I, and I don't want to give away too much, but that's, that's what we're going to do as well. Mm-hmm. And so if, just to, if people come and don't hear the overture at right. the beginning of the evening, don't be alarmed. It hasn't been cut. It's coming. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I, I, I had heard that and then I looked on the London cast recording and there was an entre act mm. distinct from the overture. There is, right. So I was like, Correct. huh, so maybe that was wrong. Maybe what so, I heard was, a, was not true. Yeah, there was, there were different um, iterations of the score as well as the script over the years and different things were put in. And, but for the most part, with all the different versions of the show, uh, my sense is for the most part, the score remained basically unchanged. Mm. I mean, the, the songs were the songs. Right. right. You earlier said that Mac and Mabel is like the Jerry Hermanist <laughs> of Jerry Herman's scores. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, is there any particular song or moment in the show that you think is like a paradigmatic example? When you hear it, you say, ah, oh, that's Jerry Herman. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think I think when Mabel comes in the mm-hmm. room would be as the, we yeah. talked about, but also, you know, you think about people think of like Irving Berlin. People think that his music was simple mm. and like sort of basic in some way, even though it's also wonderfully tuneful. First of all, tuneful is extremely. It's not easy to do. Mm. A B. You know, he had a, a richer style and, and capability than maybe he gets credit for. If you look at a song like If You Walked Into My Life from Mame, um, 
and a song like Time Heals Everything, which has a chromaticism, it has a, it, it has more sophisticated harmonies in there. And so, um, but I don't know. I think I Won't Send Roses is sort of the, the anthem of the show. It's the mm. song of the show, you know. Mm. I don't think there's anything wrong with tuneful. I think tuneful <laughs> is not. what you want to aspire no, to. No, of course, yeah. No, and that's and that's um, you know that's what makes working on the score. Uh, it's easy to teach. I will tell you that. <laughs> Everyone's like, oh yeah, I know everybody gets yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um, you know, there's there's a lot of nuance and things that we're gonna continue to kind of look at, but. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a, so far on day two. Yeah, it's been a joy. It's been a joy working with, with this uh, cast. Too. <laughs> At what point does everyone come together? What time? What point, what point in the process does the cast stay, sing with the orchestra? With the orchestra. Oh, um, we have a sits probe day, which is at the end of the. Well, let's see. Today's day two. It's the end of next week. So, about after about ten days, we come together, <laughs> and there's Doug and us laughing. I have what we do at encores is we already had a, I had an orchestra rehearsal two weeks ago or mm. last week or I don't know. We usually have an orchestra rehearsal before we start with the cast just to read everything down. Sometimes we do shows where some of the music's never been recorded and the director or the choreographer want to hear what it sounds like mm. before they start staging it. Um, sometimes we're dealing with shows that have um, compromised orchestra parts or things that we need to hear to know if we have to fix things in the orchestration and so have you had to rebuild scores too from from scratch oh yeah yeah Yeah. we have it's really run the gamut of the most extreme situation probably was three years ago when we did the new yorkers by Mm. cole porter and there was no score at all there was no piano score there was no orchestration there was nothing just a script so we had to create that score from scratch yeah that was probably the most extreme. But then we've had shows where we have a piano score, but there are no orchestrations. So we have, we've had Jonathan Tunick do some of those um, over the years. But for the most part, I mean, our mission being play these shows with the original orchestrations, with the full-size orchestra. Um, you know, that's usually what we do. Yeah. And then you have a show like Mac and Mabel where right. everybody knows the score. Yes. <laughs> so everybody's very but, familiar with but it. But there was work to be done on that because... Mm-hmm. Um, in the different versions of the show, some of the orchestrations did get tinkered with, and so we've really restored it back to the Broadway instrumentation. And it's usually stuff that you wouldn't necessarily notice. It's like woodwind doublings. You know, a lot of times mm. shows, once they go on tour, they get into licensing, they would simplify woodwind doublings. Because in New York, you've got guys who can play six or seven instruments, and they'll simplify it. And then we often have to undo that kind of thing. Our goal is always to try to get back to what it was in the original pit mm. on Broadway. So I have a great uh, team, Josh Clayton, who works with me, is, is instrumental in, um, in helping all that stuff happen. Mm. Amazing. Well, you mentioned that um, the score has been tinkered with a little bit over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand there was a sort of titular song added to the melody mm-hmm. of um, Look, Look What Happened, Happened to Mabel, Mabel. that's mm-hmm. called Mac and Mabel, that right. comes back later in the show. What purpose does that, does that song serve in the... Well, course of the story. Well, we are not doing that. So. You're not doing that. Oh, okay, so that. that's we chose not to, to do that. So this is an example of where we we looked at the different versions of yeah. things, and we sort of made our own judgment. And we also tend, I personally always tend to, where there's a question, I tend to favor 
well, what, what did they do in the original? And mm -hmm. this, this piece was not in the original. Right. And interestingly, I, I think they probably added it at some point because it was the, the only time that they sang, would sing together. I mean, you guys don't sing together at any point in the show. Right. And so this was a sort of a little duet, but we found that it wasn't necessary. Mm. Um, and everyone sort of agreed to that. And, and so we won't be hearing that. Interesting. So now, so now that you've mentioned mm -hmm. it, um, yes. <laughs> I'm going to nerd out here. Yeah. Um, are you using Hit Him on the Head or My Heart Leaps Up? You are. You're really good. You're good. <laughs> you. um, so, I, again, I... Oh, yes? Oh yeah, what do you want to hear? <laughs> yeah, what do you? Which one do you want? Um, I, I think I'd probably be more excited to to see my uh, uh, hit him on the head. Oh good, well then you'll be happy. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But the thing is that because um, that was the original song that was written, right? And it was cut and replaced with "My Heart Leaps." Correct. Up, right? But yeah. then we're doing that version that you'll hear on the London recording with yeah. Howard McGillan, where he sings a little bit of "My Heart Leaps Up" at the top. At the top is mm -hmm. sort of a set the set the table. I'm a cup falls down, my heart leaps up. Hit him on the head, ha, ha, ha. kick him in the shins. Ha, ha, ha. The heroine's behind is oh so ripe for bruising. Lash him in the loin. And then we jump into hit, me, hit him on the head, which then turns into a huge uh, you know, Keystone Cop Ballet, which, you know, we just did one last year, yes. Button Shoes, yes. so we're going to do another one. But yeah. um, Well, it's interesting. I mean, didn't didn't Gower Champion cut it originally because he was concerned about the comparison between that, that and High Button I Shoes? I have heard that, yeah. 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 yeah, I have heard that. And, you know, you never know, too. It's like between Gower Champion and Robert Preston and all the people there at the time, who wanted what version? Right. I, I don't have all that information. Yeah. But I do know that when the show was... First time it was licensed after Broadway, Hit Him on the Head was back in that hmm. edition. So clearly uh, the authors, I'm yeah. assuming, wanted that song. There's always detective work and always, yeah. you know, you look at things and you go, knowing how shows are made and put together, and you, you look at things and you, you can try to figure out why decisions were made at the time and, hmm. and hmm. therefore what we feel we have license to, to do. Well, I think you've answered this, and mm -hmm. so I might. This might be the third time you're <laughs> okay. going to say this song. Okay. But do you have a favorite moment in the show? Favorite moment in the show. Um, favorite musical. Uh, moment. Yeah, I will say that when at the orchestra rehearsal, when we get to that interlude and time heals everything, and the and the, that trumpet mm. just takes the melody and it's this huge strings. I mean, it's just soaring and it's big and it's. It's uh, very exciting. That was a very exciting moment at the mm. rehearsal, yeah. been talking about Mac and Mabel since about uh, 10 o'clock this morning. I'm sure. And we, Rob and I, have been talking about Mac and Mabel for, well, since we met, <laughs> for two solid yeah. years, okay. but, but, but a lot over the last couple of days. Uh -huh. And, and Time Heals Everything is the song that keeps coming up. Yeah. It's the, it's, I think that, I think it's, 
you know, there's there's been some conversation about um, you know saying that the score is simple, and it's not. I no. think I think I think time heals everything is pure poetry, and mm -hmm. I think it's a very complicated song, mm -hmm. and I think it's a beautiful song. So it's and, and it's a beautiful it's a great song to interpret. You know, that's the thing. It's it's when you look at the lyrics on the page, the script came out, and I was like, it looks like nothing. It looks like a tiny little, you know, and and so you go, wow. Um, but Alexandra has a great uh, feeling for it already, and you know it. Um, it there's just a lot there. There's a lot you can really dig into with that piece mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, we can't wait to hear it. Um, oh, thank you for your time, of and course. also yes. and also thank you yes. for everything that you and Encores have done over oh, the years for, for all of us because yeah. it is a it is not only a New York institution but it is a treasure, yeah, and we are very you. privileged to I, to be a part of it. I appreciate that. Mac and Mabel opens tonight and runs through Sunday, February 23rd at New York City Center. You do not want to miss this production. But if you do or you're listening to this episode after the fact, you can go online and find a highlights video so you can witness everything we've talked about on this episode come to life. Rob here. That's our show. Thanks for listening. You can hear us anytime on iTunes. As mentioned at the top of this episode, be sure to check out Social Goods, an online store that offers a curated slate of statement-making merchandise that gives back to nonprofits tackling today's most pressing issues, from every town for gun safety to Planned Parenthood of New York, the Special Olympics, and more. Best of all, we've partnered with Social Goods to offer a special discount for listeners of The Fabulous Invalid. Go to social-goods.com and use the code FAB15 at checkout to receive 15% off your first order. That's Social Goods, where every transaction comes with real action. The Fabulous Invalid is a production of O&M Etc. and The Fabulous Invalid LLC, and a proud member of the Broadway Podcast Network. Our theme music is by Lucky Chops. Today's episode was edited and engineered by Jamie Dumont and Aaron Kaufman. You can find us online at thefabulousinvalid.com and on social media at Fabulous Invalid, and on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. A very special thanks to New York City Center for facilitating this episode, and be sure to tune in next Wednesday. Hi y'all, this is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. 
Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.